I, two weeks ago, I guess, we started a new series called Happy. And in this series, we um, are looking at the very first part of the first sermon that Jesus, that we have, that Jesus preached in the very first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And it's a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. So it spans three chapters in the book of Matthew. And we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, giving you a little context. Context is important. So the people that Jesus is talking to, he had, there was this crowd that, that, that had gathered around him. And it was a lot of hurting people. You know, Jesus was doing things like healing people, providing food for people, right? So there's this crowd of needy, hurting people that are longing for happiness that are following Jesus. And so Jesus goes up like on the side of a mountain. So there's a huge group of people. In order for people to hear him, he had to be like elevated above them so his voice carried. So he went up on the side of a mountain and he began to teach them. And one of the things like we, we talked about, I touched on this a little bit last week. Um, one of the like big themes in the Sermon on the Mount, I really challenge you, if you've never read it, read it. It's three chapters. It doesn't take you that long. And it is so profound. It is so powerful. But one of the big themes that you see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is this idea that if you're a Christian, so Jesus is very clear with this, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are to be different, right? We're to be different. And so the world says one thing. So you'll see, you'll read things like, you have heard it said, dot, 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 and Jesus says something, but I say to you, dot, 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 right? And, and so like we live in a world, and they did too, 2,000 years ago, where the world says some things are right and good and fine. And some of those things line up very well with what Jesus says are right and good and fine. But there's other things that the world says are right and good and fine that are not, right? And so the standard, you'll see this all throughout, the standard that Jesus calls us to in this sermon in particular is a high standard. He's like, if you're a follower of me, if you're, one, if you're a Christian, you're to, we're to be different from the world, right? And so in the very first part of this sermon, which is where we're focusing in this series, Jesus starts out, I think this is interesting, the first thing that he starts out talking to people about is happiness, like how to be happy. Because we live in a world where like that is a universally desired quality, right, of, of my life. Like, I want to be happy in my life. And so it's the very first thing that Jesus talks about in this. And so each of the weeks, we've been kind of jumping into one of these. Um, they're called the Beatitudes, right? One of these Beatitudes. And all Beatitude means, it's a Latin word that means blessing or blessed, right, or extreme blessing. That's why we call it the Beatitudes. So in this first part, there's eight of these Beatitudes that each week we're going to be jumping into one of these. So two weeks ago when we started the series, we looked at the first Beatitude. The first Beatitude is this. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We looked at that and we said, essentially what Jesus is saying here, what that means is, blessed are those that realize they are poor spiritual beggars before God. Blessed are those that realize that we are spiritually destitute, that we are spiritually bankrupt. Happy am I when I realize that I bring nothing to God that makes me worthy of his goodness and his kindness and his generous love for me, his forgiveness, his peace, his salvation, right? Only when I realize that I bring nothing, like what makes me worthy of God's love and acceptance my hands are empty. 
I am a poor spiritual beggar. I bring nothing that makes me worthy. I rely completely on the generosity of God. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. So important. If you missed that, I'd really encourage you to check that out. These first two sermons, the first two Beatitudes, are fundamental. They're like foundational to the other six. And so understanding those is so, so important. So that's the first one, poor in spirit. Last week, we talked about the second beatitude. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. This is kind of a weird one, right? Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we dug into that, and we said essentially what that means is blessed are those who feel deep inner agony and anguish over their sin, specifically about their sin, for they will be comforted by God. And what we said was, we will never be happy until we grasp and anguish over how sinful we are compared to God's holiness. Like my sinfulness compared to God's holiness. And we said, that is an uncomfortable thought, right? Like it is disturbing for us to sit and think about our sinfulness. But we said, it's only then, like when I, when I grasp and anguish over my sinfulness. It's only then that I realize how much I need Jesus, right? Like when I realize God is holy and he's perfect and he's righteous and he's just and he's good and I am other than that, right? Like I am different than that. It's only then that I go, man, now I see my need for Jesus. That, he, that he, this, this comfort that he offers us so generously through the Holy Spirit. And then we, we kind of came back around at the end last week and we said, you know what, when you, when you take a step back, so I think Jesus is talking specifically about grieving or mourning over our sin, but when you take a step back, we said, is it really everything that we grieve over and mourn over in this life because of sin? I challenged you last week, I said, I cannot think of one thing that we grieve over in life that's not a result in some way of sin's influence on the world, right? Sickness, death, broken relationships, abuse, loss of innocence, selfishness, the list goes on and on. All of those things that we grieve over and mourn over. Romans 8 talks about how sin entered the world and the world, like everything's affected. The world groans because of sin's effect on it. And so we said, as you know, we mourn over these things um, because sin is the cause of them, God also mourns over these things, which is so helpful for us, I think, when we're in the middle of it, you know, to know that I'm not alone, particularly maybe with like loss of life, somebody that we love that dies. Okay, you know, why we could be tempted to go, why God, why do you allow this to happen? But God is mourning with us. God is grieving with us. And we ended last week saying um, another thing that helps us process through mourning and grief is knowing that one day it's ending. You know, like Jesus didn't design it that way to begin with. And one day it says in Revelation, he's going to make everything new. One day there's going to be end to death and mourning and crying and pain. And he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Like that's a promise that's a promise to us that I think makes when we're in the thick of it, when we're grieving and mourning, it gives us hope. We can mourn and grieve in a different way. So that's where we've been at the last couple weeks. Um, this week, I want to look at the third beatitude, which is Matthew 5.5. 5. 
Um, I want to do it the same way. I want to kind of build into it the same way that we've done the last couple weeks. We've read the entire thing, all, all eight of the Beatitudes, 12 verses, not that long, but all eight of the Beatitudes because I really want this to like sink into our hearts. And I want to challenge you again the same way I challenged you last week, the same way I'm challenging myself, and that's to memorize these with us. You know, like we, as adults, man, we just, it's, we seldom memorize things anymore. Kids do more. As adults, we seldom, we never even memorize phone numbers anymore. We have phones, we just put them in. I don't know anybody's phone number, right? We never memorize stuff. But there's something powerful about having God's word, like, in us, you know, so that when we're going through those hard things, like mourning, for example, we can remember the promise, the truth, that he will comfort us. Right? So I want to challenge you, each, how I'm doing it, each week that you know, we're, we're covering one of those, I'm just memorizing that one each week, adding a new one, memorizing it, adding a new one. So eight weeks, you got all eight of those memorized. So I want to challenge you guys to do that again. So let's look at it. So this is Matthew 5, and we'll pick up in verse 1. So this is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know what you think when you read that, but even like that little snippet, those 12 verses there, we read that and we go, man, that is different. There are things that Jesus tells us just in those 12 verses that are really different than what the world says is right and good and proper, right? Just powerful stuff. So I want to spend our time here in, uh, in the third one. So Matthew 5, 5. So blessed or happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When I, when I was a kid... Uh, we had family friends, so f friends that were uh, friends with our family. We would get together, um, but they lived in Louisville, Kentucky. Anybody ever been to Louisville, Kentucky? Louisville's like a really cool city. Um, like parts of Louisville are like deep south, you know, and then other parts are like kind of big city, metropolitan. It's just a cool place. So we would go down there, um, I, you know, for like four or five year period. I think we'd go down like every year. And when we went, we always went at the time of the Kentucky Derby. You guys know the Kentucky Derby? the most exciting two minutes in sports. That's what they call it, right? Like the big hats the ladies wear, well, the first leg of the Triple Crown. So this is the biggest horse race in North America, right? And so we would go and we'd like, you know, it's just like a fun time. You were down, we never actually went to the Kentucky Derby, but it's in Louisville, Kentucky. And so, you know, we were down in Louisville and we watched it on TV. So it was like a great two minutes of our vacation, you know, like doing this. But it got me like, thinking about these horses, you know, I'm remembering this memory, I'm thinking about these horses, and I don't know, like, I, I recently was close to a horse, I don't know the last time I've been close to a horse, they are magnificent animals, 
I mean, they are huge and so powerful. You know, they're covered in hair in that you can see like every striation of their muscles. I mean, they are just massive, strong beasts. And so I was reading a little bit about them. And um, so derby horses at the Kentucky Derby. So it's a one and a quarter mile track, okay? They finish in two minutes. And so their average speed of these derby racehorses is 37 miles an hour. They run 37 miles an hour for a mile and a quarter over two minutes, so fast. And it's amazing when you think, you know how much they weigh? A thousand pounds, about a thousand pounds, a half a ton. Can you imagine the power it takes to move a half a ton animal that fast for two minutes straight, like top, with a jockey on your back? Granted, they are little people, they don't weigh much, right? But you got a jockey on your back as well, and they are just all, so like the power, you know, think about the power of a horse. In fact, it's so, it's so impressive that the way today that we measure the power of our machines is by what? Horsepower, right? And, and so that started, you know, reading a little bit about this, you get off on a little tangent, start reading this stuff. I have a point with all this, promise, I promise you. I'm reading about horsepower, and you know, a guy named James Watt started this in 1781, and so he, was, he had developed the steam engine, and he's trying to get people to buy his steam engine, and so he's trying to show them how much better it is than just using horses to, I think they were grinding grain or something like that, and so he figured out the power that a horse had, and then he figured out the power of his machine, and his machine was the equivalent to 35 horses, and so he said it has 35 horsepower. Right? So that was almost 250 years ago. 250 years later today, we use horsepower for everything. Like how strong is an engine? How strong is a machine? Well, it's this many horsepower. You go to uh, you know, the Ford dealership down here and you buy a new F-150, it's somewhere between 250 to 450 horsepower, right? And when you hear that, like I don't know what you think when you hear that, I think, well, yeah, that's a lot of, you know, that, trucks are strong, but it's like 250 horses. Like that's, horse, one horsepower is probably not that strong, right? Like this is where my mind goes. Do you know how, like how much power is one horsepower? I, I was reading a, a popular science article about this this week. It was so interesting. Okay, so I like to lift weights, right? Like I like to pump some iron. So one of the most basic lifts in, in weightlifting is called a deadlift, okay? A deadlift is like exactly what it sounds like. I have to be careful I don't rip my pants here. That would be embarrassing, like Tyler Jensen has done a couple of times. Anyway, so uh, a deadlift is just what it sounds like. Essentially, you pick up dead weight from the ground to right here. That's a deadlift, okay? So about three feet. You move dead weight about three feet up. That's a deadlift. And so a good deadlift, a pretty strong, respectable deadlift in the weight room is 300 pounds. If you could do a 300-pound deadlift, I can pick 300 pounds of dead weight up, move it three feet to my hips, then you're a pretty strong person. There's not a ton of people on the planet that could lift 300-pound deadlifts, okay? So imagine this. Imagine you're going to do five reps of a deadlift, okay? So even fewer people can do five reps without injuring themselves, right? So imagine you're going to do five reps of a deadlift. So essentially, you're moving 300 pounds up three feet five times. So a little math, a little quick math here, that's 1,500 pounds. I've moved 1,500 pounds up three feet in a minute, okay? I'll say it takes, probably takes you a minute to do something like that, right? Do you know how much, so that's like the strongest human beings on the planet. Do you know how much one horsepower is? It's the equivalent of moving 10 
thousand pounds up that far in a minute. It's like the, the, the average horse is seven times stronger than the strongest human beings. Like that's one horsepower. Why do I tell you all that? Well, listen, this is so interesting to me. So the word that Jesus used here in this beatitude is meek, right? Blessed are the meek, right? This word meek, in the original language, it's in Greek, it's praus. It's praus. And what that means is it had like its origin, it had its meaning in domesticated strength. And so like, like a trained horse, they would use this word to describe a trained horse. And so horses, we just said it, are like so strong, right? They're so powerful, but an incredibly strong horse can be trained to be meek, to be praus. They're still really strong, right? If a horse is trained, it still keeps all of its strength. It just is gentle, right? It's humble, it's restrained, it's submissive, it's meek. That's what that word meek means. And so meek in our American English, we don't use that word very often, right? Like we, I, I seldom use that word. And when we do use it, we use it um, in a different way than how Jesus used it. And so when we use we, uh, meek, so I remember learning about it, I think in church as a kid, and the, and the word that I learned that was the equivalent was weak. Meek, weak. I think because they rhyme, they're easy to remember, right? So we would say, to be meek is to be weak or to be timid or to be fearful. That's how we use it today. In fact, I looked at an online thesaurus this week, just looked up the word meek just to see what came up. And those are three of the words that came up. That's how we use it. So timid, weak, fearful, that sort of thing. But that's not the meaning. It's so important. That's not the meaning that Jesus meant when he used the word. In fact, in many ways, the way Jesus used it had like the opposite meaning. It's not one, according to Jesus, that was necessarily weak. In fact, it was often used to describe those that were strong, right? People or animals like a horse. It's not somebody who's like timid and hesitant, but in order to be meek, you had to be like decisively resolute. You have to choose to do that to be that way. It's not one who's like fearful and easily frightened. In fact, for somebody to be meek, to have meekness, it takes actually great confidence and courage to be that way. And so the way that we use it in our American English, we would just read it in our Bibles and it sounds like Jesus is saying, blessed are the, are the weak, blessed are the timid, blessed are the fearful. It's not at all what he means. And I wanna say this too, I think this is interesting as well. Being meek or being gentle is not natural for us, right? Like it's not natural, it's not, at least not the way that Jesus intends it. Some people are naturally weak or timid or fearful, but to be meek, to be gentle with others, to be humble, as Jesus calls us to in this passage in Matthew 5, 5, it takes strength. It takes a strong, decisively resolute, confident, commitment, right? Let, let, me, let me take you to a passage that um, maybe will help like flesh this out, like what, what meekness looks like for us. So in the first part of our Bibles, first part's the Old Testament, right? So in the first part of our Bible, the Old Testament, there's a guy named Moses. And so Moses, if you know about him, Moses was like 
one of the top two greatest leaders in the history of Israel, probably the greatest leader in the history of Israel. You read about him. He was a guy with like incredible strength, resilience, courage. In fact, if you're a leader it, it, like, and you have like people that you're leading, leadership is tough, right? You put yourself in his shoes. He's leading millions of rebellious people for 40 years wandering through the desert. Like this is a strong, strong leader, right? And so he's also the meekest person in the world. That's how he's described. This is Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. So he's strong, he's resolute, he's a courageous leader, but he's also the meekest person on the planet at the time. Now when you hear that, I don't know what's going through your brain, but maybe you hear it and you're like, well, you know, he, he must just have good spiritual genes, you know? Like, they, it, like for some people, they're just wired that way. It comes naturally for them. I think he was probably just a naturally humble guy. But me, I'm wired differently, you know? Like, I'm more bold. I'm more blunt. I'm more aggressive. I'm more wild. Like, that's who I am. Like, but good for Moses. I wish I was that way. But I wasn't born that way the way that he was. Well, if that's our perspective with it, we're missing it. <laughs> because that's not the reality. Actually, when you look back at Moses' life, so this is, you know, when he's declared the most meek person on the planet, this is later in his life. When you look back to earlier parts of his life, he was the opposite of that. Instead of like a trained, domesticated, gentle horse, he was a wild stallion a wild stallion. So if you know the story, Moses was um, a Jew, so he was a Hebrew, but he was raised by an Egyptian. And so, in fact, not even just any Egyptian, but the daughter of the most powerful Egyptian. So the, the leader of Egypt was Pharaoh. He's kind of like the king, right? And so the daughter of Pharaoh adopted Moses. And so Egypt at the time was like the power. They were over uh, Israel, right? They were over the Jews, Okay, so they were like oppressive over them. And at one point, Moses, the like wild stallion in him, acts up. I want to read this to you. So this is the same guy that would later be called the meekest person on the planet. Ready? This is Exodus 2. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. So they were slaves. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Like, um, put yourself in this situation. He just murdered somebody. And he dug a big hole in the sand, threw him in, covered him back up so that no one would know, right? So he killed him and he hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one the wrong. He said, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid, and he thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian. He was about 40 years old when all this happened, by the way, which is interesting. I read that, and I'm like, that is not a meek, gentle, humble guy. You know, that is not a domesticated, well-trained horse. That is a wild stallion who is out of control. And it's interesting, Moses spends the next 40 years, he goes out there when he's about 40, he spends the next 40 years essentially hiding in the wilderness. And during that time, God's working on him. Like God's shaping his heart. 
And if you know the story, eventually God calls Moses out of the wilderness. He appears to him in a burning bush so that he would return to Egypt and help free his people from the oppression of the Egyptians. And when he returns, he is a different man. He goes from being this wild stallion to being the meekest man on the planet. That's meekness. It's not, so, so, so let's pull some things out of this. Let's pull some points out of this. Here's the first thing. Meekness is not natural. Meekness is not natural. None of us are naturally meek. None of us have, you know, like superior spiritual genes. None of us is just born that way. It is not, meekness, humility, gentleness with others is not natural. And we're not conditioned for it either, right? Like think about how our culture, like what our culture teaches, what our culture conditions us for. In many ways, the things that we're conditioned for culturally are like the opposite of meekness, right? I I like how um, our Norton campus pastor, Dan Gregory, he was talking about this, and he said this. He said, in our culture, we have different beatitudes. In our culture, we say, happy are the strong, they survive. Happy are the loud, they're heard. Happy are the pushy, they get what they want. Happy are the arrogant, they get noticed. Happy are the aggressive, they get ahead. Right? Like we live in a culture that has, there's a lot of wonderful things about our culture. And there's a lot of things that are like very different than what Jesus says. Another guy, Don McCullough, I like how he says this. This is funny. He says, meekness, let's admit it. We don't like the word. It tastes insipid. It smells like morning mouth. <laughs> it looks like Casper Milk Toast. That's a comic strip guy, old comic strip guy. It has the strength of a cooked noodle. Coaches don't rally teams with it. Executives don't, sell, don't send salespeople out in the field with it. Politicians don't promise to lead with it. Parents don't counsel their kids to develop it. Generals don't embolden troops with a speech about it. There's no seminars on meekness. It seems un-American. You think about that, you're like, there's probably a lot of truth to that, right? And yet, it's what Jesus says leads to happiness. Jesus, the God-man, the one who started the most impactful, most life-changing movement in the history of humanity, says, no, no, no. Meekness leads to happiness. Maybe he knows what he's talking about, right? So Jesus calls us to meekness. It's not natural for us. So what are we to do? Like, if it doesn't come natural for me, like what, and, and yet this is what God calls us to do, what do we do about it? Well, we develop it. So I'd say meekness is not natural, but it can be developed and it can be trained. So, so go back to our horse conversation, right? I don't think I've ever preached about horses as much as I'm preaching about horses in the sermon, but go back to our horse conversation. I, uh, yesterday, I met with an equine therapist, a, ho- a horse therapist. And I asked her these questions. They don't, she doesn't counsel horses. She uses horses to counsel people. So she's with horses a lot. And I, and I asked her this question. I said, listen, is there a horse on the planet that is naturally meek? Like, is there a horse on the planet that is naturally domesticated, you know, like perfectly obedient, under control? And she's like, no, they're wild animals, right? Like, it doesn't come natural for any of them. And yet, they can be trained, right? They could all be trained. How are they trained? Well, they're trained with a horse trainer, right? Okay, what does a horse trainer do? Well, the horse trainer spends time with the horse. They feed the horse. 
They work with the horse. They gain the trust of the horse. They teach the horse to keep their strength under control so that the horse doesn't hurt other people for the safety of others, right? And, you know, you think about that, and I'm like, God, isn't that, like, what God does with us? Like, isn't it, like, he's like our divine trainer, our divine, you know, we, we have dog whisperers, we have horse whisperers, he's the human whisperer, right? Like, this is what the Holy Spirit does inside of you and me. He, may, he trains us, he develops us, he makes us meek, he makes us more like Jesus. Because Jesus was the epitome of meekness, right? Like, talk about strength under control. You know, you read passages like Colossians 1, it talks a little bit about the power of Jesus. Like, he created everything. Everything that we see, everything that it is, is by his power, by his strength, right? Like, he had the ultimate power on the planet, and yet he was gentle with others. He could wipe us out but he was gentle with others. He was humble. He was meek. Passages like Matthew 21, here's what it says. Behold your kings. This is actually a prophecy about Jesus that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. This is who he is. Behold your king is coming to you, humble. That's that same word, praus. It's just translated as humble here instead of meek. Sometimes it's humble, sometimes it's gentle, sometimes it's meek. So behold your king is coming to you, praus, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. A little bit later in Matthew 11, this is Jesus talking. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love this passage. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, from gentle, pros, meek, and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want to be meek in your life? Like we have the perfect example Right here, Jesus showed us what meekness looks like. The king of all creation, the one who created everything that is, ultimately suffered and died, laid down his life for us so that we could live, even though he had the power, he had the strength to do otherwise. He had the power to just wipe us out and start over. But he's meek. And God wants to make us like him. You you ever heard of um, the fruits of the Spirit? The fruits of the Spirit, it talks about it in Galatians chapter 5. And so, like, these are things that God creates inside of us. So, like, a healthy apple tree produces apples, right? It produces apple fruit. When we're healthy spiritually, the Holy Spirit produces this fruit in our lives, these these outcomes in our lives. So, Galatians 5 talks about this promise of these list of outcomes, this fruit that it brings about. You know what one of them is? Meekness. Right? This is Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, forbearance. I'm sorry, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's that same word. A little bit different tense, but it's the exact same word. Praotes. And self-control. Like this is what God trains and develops inside of us. It's not natural for any of us. We're way more naturally selfish and prideful and focused on what we want. But God will grow it and develop it if we invite him to, and if we allow him to. So here's a question, are you inviting him to? Are you allowing him to? Because like those 11 kids this week that made decisions to follow Jesus, they are not just gonna automatically become wonderful little meek children 
that will one day turn into wonderful meek adults. Like it doesn't just happen. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. We have to invite the Holy Spirit to work. And in those moments when we want to act selfish and put my needs in front of other people, I remember my commitment and I allow the Spirit to help me make the decisions instead of just me. Let me say one other thing here. So, so go back to the horse metaphor. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but go back to the horse metaphor here. I just thought of that last service. That so, good. Um, so, so in order for a horse to become domesticated, right? In order for a horse to become trained, to become meek, prous, what has to be broken in that horse? It's will, right? You ever heard of that? Like you got to break a horse in order for a horse to become tame? It's will has to be broken, right? Guys, it is the exact same thing with us. Meekness is not natural. It can be developed and trained when our will is broken. Do not forget the first two beatitudes here. Like Jesus is very intentional with the order with which he brings these, with which he teaches these. Don't forget the first one, being poor in spirit and mourning over our sin. What are those all about? Our brokenness, right? I realize how spiritually bankrupt I am. I realize how much my life, my thinking, my actions, like how much sin is like intertwined with all of that. And I go, I am a mess. I'm a mess. I need Jesus. I can't do it on my own. I've lived my life doing what I want to do and look at how many people I've hurt. Look at the messes that I've caused. And we go, God, no longer. Not my will, but yours be done. Like that's, that's brokenness. Just like a horse that's a wild stallion has to have its will broken in order to be domesticated and tamed, we are wild stallions that have to be broken before God, realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt, realizing like agonizing over the depth of our sin in order for us to become meek, in order for us to become like Jesus. Meekness doesn't come natural what God does inside of us when we allow him to. Not my will, but his. And I'll end with this. So just like all of the Beatitudes, uh, this one has a promise attached to it, right? All of them have, you know, blessed are the dot, 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 for theirs is the. There's a, a promise attached to it. So this one does too. So blessed or happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who will inherit the earth? Like who has a future inheritance? The meek, Right? I like how a guy named Alan Ross, Dr. Alan Ross says it. He says, it's not the powerful despots. It's not the ruthless tyrants. It's not the manipulative, manipulative schemers that possess the earth. It's possessed by the meek. And guys, listen, sometimes we can be inclined or like pressured to think that like, I gotta, I gotta get mine. I gotta, I gotta provide for my family. I gotta plan for my future. And so I gotta take charge, you know? I gotta exert my will. I have to manipulate and control the situation. It all depends on me to make things happen. Like somehow we can like get that into our thinking. I think because we're culturally like told that, you know? When God says, no, that, that, that's not who has an inheritance one day. That's not who has the future. It's not the strong that inherit the earth. It's not the aggressive that inherit the earth. It's not the people that go out and get theirs that inherit the earth. It's the meek. 
It's those that are gentle with others. It's those that are humble and broken and submissive to other people. Let me, let me end by just asking a few questions. Here's the first one. Does this describe you? <laughs> you know, like, if we were to ask somebody else, would they say, yes, that, that's who they are? You know, are you pursuing meekness in your life? Are you pursuing gentleness with others? Humbleness? Are you pursuing brokenness? submission to other people and how about this here's this is, i think this is a very legit question do you want that to describe you because if i'm honest i've had i had many years of my life where i did not want to be described as a meek person i wanted to be described as a strong person probably starts because i'm so short and i thought if i'm going to be short i'm going to be wide and strong you know and i always wanted to be i had like this infatuation with strength and, but it wasn't just physical strength. It was like, I wanted to be aggressive. I want to be a, somebody who's known to, you know, like, take charge of things. I had no desire to be meek. Do you desire meekness in your life? If so, are you inviting and allowing God's Holy Spirit to do that, to develop that, to train that inside of you? Do you trust him when he says, this leads to happiness? We live in a world that says, no, no, happiness is like when you get what you want. Happiness is getting your own way. Happiness is comfortability. Happiness is all of these things. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. It's counterintuitive, I know. But happiness is actually when you elevate other people. When you don't use your strength to dominate people. You submit to them. And when, when I do weddings, I always talk about submission. It, it works really well in marriage, right? You know what submission is? Submission is yielding in love to another. It's all about meekness, submission and meekness. I go, I, not my will, I don't want my way. I yield, I step back and I yield because I love you to what you desire. That's submission, that's meekness, right? Like, do we trust Jesus when he says, this leads to happiness? I know it sounds weird, but if you wanna be happy, this is the path to happiness. Imagine how it might change our relationships. You know, like think about maybe some of the strained relationships in your life. We all have them, I think, at one point or another. Like how might it change if you took on the, the attitude of meekness and you begged God, you begged his Holy Spirit to develop that inside of you? How might it change those relationships? Are you pursuing meekness? Jesus says, if we want to be happy, this is part of it.